My first encounter with Eminem was probably when I was about five, maybe younger, but old enough to remember a music video that I saw on MTV. A nurse in a hospital waiting room calls out on an intercom, can I have your attention please? And immediately my five-year-old brain and everyone else in the country was gripped. And maybe not in a good way. Actually, maybe the first video I saw was the Without Me video. I mean, the sentiment is pretty much the same in both. There's hospital scenes and him dressed up as a superhero and just enough sexual content to be disturbing for a kid, but not enough to be nixed from MTV. So either way, I was honestly terrified of Eminem as a kid. Maybe it was the sexual nature of his videos that I just didn't understand mixed with the weird sort of scream vocal inflection thing he does. There was just a general weirdness to him, and I don't know what it was, but I was genuinely unsettled. That's why, when a few years later... Okay, let's be real, it's probably like a month later, or like the same time when all of this was just a rush of information at me. I wasn't watching, like I wasn't watching this stuff when it first came out. It was all just, it was all just around, you know? So, a few months later, when I saw my sister watching a movie on TV with a bunch of dudes rapping at each other, I was stunned to see what appeared to me to be an Eminem lookalike because no way that was actually him singing this. Yo. His palms are sweaty, knees weak, arms are heavy. There's vomit on his sweater already. Mom's spaghetti. I'm Tony Yeltsin, and if you've listened to the past few episodes, you know that this is Soundscape, the podcast where I talk about songs that I've deemed the most influential to Gen Z. So today we're talking all about Eminem, his trials and tribulations, his complexities, and the longevity of his career. Get a little snack, settle in, or maybe for someone like me who does chores while listening to podcasts, pick up a sponge and get ready to lose yourself in this Eminem extravaganza. I've been watching too much Drag Race. Sorry, sorry for that, let's move on. So let's get real for a second. I've been doing this podcast year by year and starting with the year 2000. So with this being the fourth episode, this should be the year 2003. And I chose the song Lose Yourself under the impression that it came out at the start of 2003. Sadly, I was wrong. The song, written and produced by Eminem, was actually released in 2002. Sorry guys, this was generally a mistake since it was counted in 2003 music year and it comes out on the top hits in 2003. That's kind of when it had its blow up but it was released in October of 2002. So apologies for that. We're still going to count it for 2003 because Eminem's career really was at its peak from like 1999, 2003, for even longer, you could argue. And most certainly, he was all up in the mainstream at this time. So let's just roll with it. And maybe next episode, I will do a 2003 part two. It's really just for me because I have too many songs to cover. So maybe that's maybe that's happening. Maybe that's in the works. All right, let's start off by talking about Eminem and his early life. Marshall Mathers was born on October 17th, 1972, which is puzzling to me. There's no fucking way that this guy is almost as old as my dad, as my literal parents. He looks like, he, like in 8 Mile, he looks like he's 18, 20 years old. He's literally 30. That blows my fucking mind. Ugh. Anyways, he's born in St. Joseph, Missouri. He was the only child of Marshall Bruce Mathers Jr. and Debbie Ray Nelson. Uh, the two met when Debbie was 15 and Marshall was 22. His parents played in a band called Daddy Warbucks, playing in hotels along the Dakotas and Montana border until, well, actually, I don't know how long they did that shit, but I do know that two years after getting married, they have a son, little baby Eminem, who they named Marshall Mathers. Good old instance of dad naming his son after him. Side note, 
A lot of the information about his early years I got from the 1999 Rolling Stone article, Eminem Blows Up by Anthony Baza, so check that out, it's really good. They even interview a bully, uh, an ex, an ex-bully, I don't know, a, a kid, a guy who's now married and has kids, who bullied Eminem when they were young and actually landed Eminem in the hospital for it, so it really gets in depth, some, some good stuff, good journalism there. Anyways, the couple split soon after. His dad running off to California while Debbie and little Marshall lived with family members for a few years and bounced around from place to place, never really settling down until Mathers was 11 when they moved to Detroit. In his teen years, Mathers tried contacting his dad, but according to his mom, all the letters came back with a return to sender. Even once settled down, Mathers' childhood was looking pretty grim. He was bullied profusely, being an outsider in the town because, you know, he's one of the only white kids in a predominantly black neighborhood, and he and his mom didn't really seem to have the best relationship as well when they was at home. Reportedly by him, when Mathers was 15, his mom yelled at him to get a job, start helping with the bills if he was living at home, which, like, he's 15, but whatever. And he was quoted in Rolling Stone saying something along the lines that even when he did get a job, most of the time his mom would kick him out and take most of his paycheck anyways, although his mom says that this is untrue. So he talks a lot in songs about how drug abuse was a large thing in his house growing up, and his mom was not... His mom wasn't too fond of this slander by him um, and actually ends up taking him to court in 1999 for defamation. She claims that Mathers was raised in a drug and alcohol-free house. And, okay, who knows the full story? But regardless, it wasn't easy for Eminem growing up. Let's just say that. Because he had to get a job at such a young age, Mathers dropped out of school at age 15. He would still sneak into the local high school so that he could participate in lunchroom rap throwdowns. Very 8 Mile-esque. And reportedly, he smoked all the other kids every time. He also went to open mic contests at the hip-hop shop in the Detroit scene, practicing his freestyle skills. I think 8 Mile literally, like, takes that verbatim. I think they even talk about the hip-hop shop. Anyways, Mathers says that he heard his first rap song at a really young age. The song was Reckless, a track featuring Ice-T on the break-in soundtrack, which that CD was given to him by his uncle Ronnie, who he's pretty close to and committed suicide 10 years later, which greatly affected him as well. God damn, give him a break! He's just having hit after hit. From that 1999 Rolling Stone article by Baza, he writes that the facts of his life, according to this article, are as follows. One, Eminem has never met his father. Two, he spent his formative years living in a largely black, lower middle class Detroit neighborhood. Three, he dropped out of high school in the ninth grade. Four, him and his baby's mother have been breaking up and making up for the past eight years. And five, he loves their three-year-old daughter, Haley Jade, more than anybody else in the world. So that gives a pretty good perspective of what's going on in his life at that time. Him and his future wife, Kim Scott, met when Mathers was 15 and she was 13, I think, something around there. And in 1995, they had their daughter Haley together. Yet another pernicious relationship in his life. The teen lovebirds tied the knot in 1999, but they end up getting divorced two years later. Mathers had a really, shall we say, difficult relationship with Kim which included a lot of verbal and physical abuse from both sides. And through his music, Eminem has aired out a lot of dirty laundry about his relationship with Kim. Um, with the release of the song Just the Two of Us, which he took Haley Long to the studio to record, he was quoted in Rolling Stone talking about how he told Kim that he was taking Haley to Chuck E. Cheese when they went to the studio to record it. He states, When she found out I used our daughter to write a song about killing her, she fucking blew. We had just got back together for a couple of weeks. Then I played her the song, and she bugged the fuck out. Mm, this, this gets spicy. This gets a little uncomfortable. And I'm going to try to keep it as lighthearted as possible. 
but this is fair warning of the content that is going to unravel. So this was kind of a trend, him saying heinous and violent things about Kim and his music. On the song Kim and also 97 Bonnie and Clyde, Dr. Dre commented, if I was her, I would have ran when I heard that shit. It's over the top. The whole song is him screaming. It's good though. Kim gives him a concept. Okay, there's a difference between a muse and um, saying horrible, evil things in your music, maybe? I don't know. I'm not, I'm not going to try to put in my opinion too much here. That's not what I'm here for. Or is it? I don't know. On this topic, Eminem further added, uh, talking about his daughter specifically, when she gets old enough, I'm going to explain to her. I'll let her know that mommy and daddy weren't getting along at the time. None of it was to be taken literally. Although at the time, I wanted to fucking do it. So Mathers is the first to admit that he has a bad temper. He And I guess he uses that as fuel or inspiration, you can call it, in a lot of his music. From that Rolling Stone article, once again, he says... My thoughts are so fucking evil when I'm writing shit. If I'm mad at my girl, I'm going to sit down and write the most misogynistic fucking rhyme in the world. It's not how I feel in general. It's how I feel in that moment. Okay. Um, that seems like a sign that you should go to therapy. Maybe. I don't know. Seems like a lot of pent-up misogyny. Which is understandable from his past, but we all have past trauma we need to work through. Okay? Okay, Marshall? Let's, um, let's figure that out. Diving more into their relationship problems, shit really goes public in the early 2000s when Kim attempts suicide after attending one of Mather's concerts. From an Atlantic article by Sadie Doyle, she writes, In May of 2000, Eminem released a song entitled Kim. Honestly, guys, go listen to that song. It's such a, like, mindfuck of what was just, like, acceptable in the early 2000s. Like, we were just like, yeah, this is, like, fine. Like, silly... Okay, this isn't one of those, like, silly little Eminem songs, like, Without Me or, like, The Real Slim Shady, you know. This was, like, this was, like, bad. This is pretty intense, but it's still, like, just was, people let it slide. And we'll get into this more. So, in the article, she writes, Eminem released a song entitled Kim about kidnapping and murdering his wife. Later that year, when she attended one of his shows, he nearly killed her with it. I asked him before the show if he was going to play that song, and he said no, Mathers said. Mathers, meaning his wife. In a 2007 interview for 2020, he played it anyways, just watching everyone else just singing the words and laughing and like jumping around in approval of just I couldn't take it. She went home and slashed her wrist. The author goes on to say, all of which is to say, Eminem's laughter and that of his fans has had some very severe consequences. If Eminem is using his music to come to terms with abusing his wife now, kind of referencing which we will get into love the way you lie he's also used his music to perpetuate that abuse for much of his recording career oh that's some food for thought right there is it not because of this that same year kim took mathers to court in order to try to stop him from rapping about her anymore she sued for 10 million in compensation for intentional infliction of emotional distress as well as punitive damages and the legal action really sought to deter Mathers from rapping about her ever again in the future. They sort all this out in court. Things coast for a while. They're back to being on again, off again. This perpetuating cycle of abuse is happening. And in 2006, they remarry, but only for like a few months, three months, I think, before they get divorced again. At this time, Mathers legally adopts Kim's kid, who she had with another man, while they were in between being on and off again. 
in 2003 or 2004 and then Mathers legally adopts his niece Kim's sister's daughter because of her sister's drug problem so in total Eminem has three kids by 2006 kind of sort of with Kim he raised them with Kim let's say so one biological two adopted so despite over the years saying things about Eminem about how he's unfaithful or uncaring in the media Kim has also outwardly said that although their relationship is violent and emotionally distressing, that he is at least a good father to his kids. So, for now, I'll leave that all, all of that emotional baggage right there, and uh, we'll dive some more into it with, with the discourse later. But let's just, let's just hop back into the, the fun, chill stuff with his career. So anyways, in 1996, Mathers and a few other rappers formed the group The Dirty Dozen before he released his own album in 1996 off of a local label. That album was called Infinite, and the raps that kind of came after that got a lot angrier, probably due to the ridicule that he received um, in the scene after releasing his first record. So before he crashed into the scene, he was rapping locally. He was also a cook at a local restaurant in Detroit. But things go downhill before he rises to stardom. The day before his daughter's first birthday, which I think is in December, so close to Christmas too, which kind of blows, he gets fired from his job, and he also gets evicted from the friend's house, which he's been staying at. Um, and he said that, that it was at that time that he wrote the song Rock Bottom. In 1997, in dire need of monies and just another chance to flex his rapping skills, he goes to the Rap Olympics, an annual nationwide MC battle in L.A. He did really well in the competition, and despite the crowd's enthusiasm towards him chanting stuff like, Just give it to the white boy at the end, the prize of 500 bucks and a Rolex did not go to Eminem. So that was just another low blow. He's in a really bad spot after that. But things are gonna are gonna look up soon for our boy. Our boy, I don't know if I should call him that. I'm I'm conflicted with Eminem right now. I don't know where I stand. So finally, it's time. Time to discuss the silly little goofy we're we're you know, he's he's silly and goofy. He's silly and goofy to some extent. It's time to discuss the silly little goofy Eminem that we all know, putting on a little whack cartoonish act on MTV, stirring the pot, but serving up laughs. It's time for the birth of Slim Shady. While sitting on the john one day, Eminem got the idea for his sadistic alter ego. So he wiped his ass and got to work. That's really what, that's what, those are his, from him. That's how he tells it. He recorded the Slim Shady EP in the spring of 1997 and released it in December. Slim Shady was really Mather's way of expressing his violent side, but kind of with a comical flair that separated him from his art a little bit. Although the whole entire thing is problematic at its root, Slim Shady is Mather's way, like I said, of just expressing all of his in- internalized misogyny, or maybe not so internalized misogyny, and just the fucked up parts of himself in a somewhat healthy way, let's say. From Rolling Stone, it states... On the one hand, a lot of Slim Shady's cartoonish fantasies are offensive. On the other, they're better than Mathers recreating the kind of abuse the world heaped upon him while growing up. He states, I dealt with a lot of shit coming up. A lot of shit. When it's like that, you learn to live day to day. When all this happened, I took I took a deep breath, just like I did it. So, this is when things really blow up for Eminem. Dr. Dre ends up hearing the EP and tells his team to get Eminem to him. So, with a quick turnaround, he signs to Interscope in 98 and in 99 starts his own label, Shady Records. The Marshall Mathers LP was released in 2000. It sold 1.76 million copies in the first week, 
breaking Snoop Dogg's record for fastest-selling hip-hop album with Doggy Style and Spears' record for fastest-selling solo album for Baby One More Time. So, he's rocking the fucking charts. A minor personal life side note. This is the year that him and Kim got divorced the first time, which we already talked about tirelessly, but in lieu of that, he got in a fight. Kind of like what's what caused all that is that he got in a fight with a guy that he saw kissing Kim outside of a bar in Detroit, and I guess he also had an altercation with Insane Clown Posse that same year. Don't know what that's about, but interesting. Those two altercations landed him in jail, and the jail times did seem seemingly therapeutic. It kind of changed him a little bit, and he cuts back on drinking and drug use, reportedly. Good for him. Then the Eminem show, released in 2002. Honestly, banger album. Um, there was another success recent the charts and selling over 1 million copies in the first week. 8 Mile also comes out that year in the fall with Lose Yourself just completely taking over. It landed, of course, on the Billboard's Hot 100, which was Eminem's first single to make the chart. Um, and he'll have, like, several others after that. Let's just pause a minute to talk about 8 Mile. It's so good. Also, I was watching it the other night, and um, it reminded me a lot of, like, a rap version of... What's that movie? Fuck. Oh, mid-90s. It's literally, like, mid-90s, but rap version. There's, like, no plot, just vibes, just this guy, shitty life, getting through, but then he's an underdog in the end, and then there's that baller-ass part with, um... When Lose Yourself plays at the end and he's like walking away victorious, it wraps it up, it's done. It doesn't drag on for too long. It's a great movie. Also, it's so I like took that verbatim as like Eminem's life when I was a kid. I literally thought Eight Mile was like about him. And and there are a lot of similarities, honestly. There's there's a lot. But it was written the movie was written with him in mind, but it's not like a biopic or anything like that. Like that'd be so lame if you're playing yourself in a biopic. It's like inspired by him, written with him in mind, but not fully about his life. Although the similarities are pretty jarring. Anyways, Encore was released in 2004, and in 2005, he began his first concert tour in three years, but ended up canceling the European leg of the tour because he checked himself into rehab for dependency on sleep medication. So, you know, he's still having his issues, but at least he's aware of them. In 2007, Eminem goes on hiatus, questioning if he's even going to release another album or not. But, as we know, he does in 2009. Interscope announced that a new album is underway and is set to be released in that same year. And it does get released. Album Relapse does come out that year as planned with a release of the album at the end of the year, with also another re-release of the album at the end of the year with seven bonus tracks. Recovery comes out in 2010. It topped Billboard charts, yada, yada, yada. Sold well, being one of the best-selling albums of that year. Another one right around the corner with the Marshall Mathers LP2, which came out in 2013. Once again, topped the Billboard charts. Although, like, looking back, I, like, Marshall Mathers LP2... Don't love it. Don't love it. Let me just say, I don't love a lot of Eminem songs, but the ones that hit, hit, okay? And he was super influential, so let me just put that on the record. Let's wrap this shit up. Revival was released in 2017, followed by Kamikaze in 2018, then Music to be Murdered by in 2020 with the B-sides that same year, and finally, for now, Curtain Call 2, which came out in 2022. <sighs> All right. That's all for now. So let's get into the nitty gritty, shall we? Obviously, as we talked about, Eminem is a bit controversial. 
you know, he's coming out saying all these, giving all these diss tracks about, like, celebrities and saying a lot of just, like, vulgar, offensive stuff. And, like, hey, I'm okay with the vulgar stuff, you know? That's fine. Like, talking about putting his bum on someone's lips and stuff. Funny. I love it. I love a good, you know... I don't want to say dick and fart joke on the record, but I love a good, um, I love a good gross joke, okay? I was raised with brothers, like I said. It's funny. It's just, it's just funny. Eminem was funny, okay? But a lot of his stuff was, as I've talked about, fueled by his trauma and what he went through when he was younger and what he went through in his relationship, um, and how he kind of acted in that relationship and perpetuated abuse, so there's a lot of violent and misogynistic language, racist language, homophobic language in his music. And, you know, that's really early 2000s. We do know that through his career, Eminem, he does try to prove or express some growth in hopes of redemption, I think. But it just kind of raises the question, too, like, to what extent can we forgive him from this modern perspective when his music really does not pass the vibe check today? This really raises the question with um, the song Love You Way Live featuring Rihanna. We all know it. It was the first single off his album Recovery, which even just the name of that album itself is saying a lot about his um, redemption arc, we can call it. Uh, He talks about his relationship with Kim in that song. He admits to physically abusing her and looks back with regret and whatnot. The song is really crazy. There's just so many layers because it is showing this depiction of an unhealthy cycle of abuse in a relationship. I actually talked about this in a comm class recently and we like analyzed it. I'll get a little bit into that. But it really does show this unhealthy cycle of abuse in a relationship. And I think it's important to highlight that that's something that happens. But Rihanna as a figure um, who is a survivor of abuse during that same time, the whole st- all the things with Chris Brown, that situation, she's looked at as like one type of image. And Eminem is looked at as another kind Um, Especially in Eminem's case, being this kind of like white male, like a white savior type almost. He's like, I did these bad things, but I'm redeemed now. Like even in the music video, there's like a light shining behind him and he's like kind of looking angelic-like and it's just, it just sends a strange message. I think the undertones of it send a different message than looking at it from a big picture, you know? So generally looking at it I think it does some helpful things about bringing these issues of domestic abuse to a large audience and making people aware that it is a huge epidemic in America but also the video and looking at like I said those underlying themes and the really small details in it kind of give off a different story and a different takeaway so It's very layered and complex, but um, in the article, Playing with Fire, Cycles of Domestic Violence in Eminem and Rihanna's Love the Way You Lie by Suzanne Mary Enk and Blake A. McDaniel, it really analyzes the song and music video and makes some good points about it, like I was talking about, um, just kind of that like cyclical representation of abuse and how it's kind of from two sides, but it also just does bring to light how even because Eminem is coming to the forefront and basically apologizing and reflecting on his past and his wrongdoings. He shouldn't really be praised for that. He still did those wrongdoings. Um, So I won't go all all into the analysis and stuff. It is a really dense article. But yeah, there's just a lot of nuance with 
all of this. And I think that looking even just, you know, 13 years later, that song came out in 2010. Even looking 13 years later, there's a lot of stuff that's problematic with that song that maybe we didn't realize was problematic then. I think if it was like done differently in today's eyes, it would be received differently and we could maybe be a little bit more critical about it. But this is why we need media literacy, right? You know, we can watch this video and see what's good about it and see what's problematic and we can move forward and progress as a society. Amazing. It's crazy how much really has changed from like early 2000s, mid aughts or whatever the fuck we call them to now. You know, it's pretty wild so we but we're making progress when people say we're not i think we are in society at least how we view things what's acceptable yeah so also on the song bad husband off of the revival album he talks about this same kind of internal conflict of the abuse that he perpetuated and also the concept of him being a bad husband but also a good father so he discusses how he knows that he participated in the cycle of abuse and ponders the question why did I hit back so it's it shows that he's reflecting like he has this arc but I don't think that's redeeming you know is it okay to forgive Eminem is it okay to even listen to his music in modern day it's something I'm grappling with I think it's something we should all be grappling with at least you know big music buffs and people who care about morality <laughs> If you care about morality and music, then you should be considering this. <laughs> Maybe that's why you're listening. Um, but from a Vice article titled, It's Time to Forgive Eminem by Jeff Wise, it states, Today is particularly hard to grapple with considering a staggering portion of rap's rising stars are tarnished by accusations of rape, sexual assault, and battery against women. It's hard to listen to Eminem because we can't help consider the question, but at what cost? It's really hard... Yeah, I'm going to leave it at that. I'm not going to comment. On the internet in recent years, Gen Z has tried to cancel Eminem, pushing hashtags uh, and videos on social media due to his misogynistic and homophobic contents of his lyrics. So we can see how this was something we were raised around and, you know, didn't think anything of it because we were so young when all of this was going on. Now that Gen Zers are older, we can reflect and be like, oh, this is not okay. I don't really support cancel culture, but... That is how we've been reacting to celebrities and what they do wrong. And that's what we, as a generation, I guess, people who are in Gen Z have been trying to do to kind of like have Eminem be accountable for the horrible things he said in his music and the horrible things he's done also in his life. And all of this is not to say that Kim isn't at fault either. It That is part of the Love the Way You Live video that does show the realistic nature of an abusive relationship that it can be from both sides she too physically abused eminem uh probably emotionally as well in some ways and was apparently struggling with a drug problem at the time specifically cocaine she was charged with drug possession in 2003 so a lot was going on in the relationship and she she and eminem both seemed to deal with a lot of mental health problems which is going which went unaddressed which is a whole nother conversation that I could talk about for hours in our like mental health system in the United States, but I'm not I'm not gonna get into that. I'm not gonna get into that. I'm trying to keep this episode fairly short. So with all of that like going unaddressed, it really affects a relationship and obviously led to some pretty bad results. I feel like this is a really layered topic, and of course no one is gonna know the full extent of the situation. So I'm not here to make any bold claims about Eminem. Alright? I'm grappling with my relationship with him. 
and just kind of the general concept of artist versus their art and when to separate that and make the distinction between the line of you know what can I listen to and feel okay and comfortable listening to and supporting and what is not what do I not feel comfortable supporting so let me just say his fucked up lyrics and harmful actions are indefensible and especially do not fly in today's society which is a good thing like I said we've evolved but let me just say also if we're gonna cancel Eminem We'll probably have to add Bowie, Lennon, Elvis, Sinatra, Biggie, etc., etc., etc. to the list. So, sometimes, like I said, how to separate the art from the artist. I'm grappling with that. Whatever you're comfortable with, that's your decision. I'm just here to provide the facts. I'm here to provide some food for thought. There's a lot of philosophy going on in this. Topics of forgiveness. What should and shouldn't be expressed in art. I'm just going to wrap it up there. I could keep going. So, with all of his personal life aside... Eminem was really revolutionary in the hip-hop genre. That is undeniable. He added shock factor and genuinely funny and crafted rhymes to the scene in a style and voice that was uniquely his own. And being such a well-selling artist, he brought hip-hop even more to the mainstream and raised conversations about race in the genre, specifically for how, like, how white rappers fit into it and just the idea of like whiteness and commercialization and how those are paired. So yeah, and just raised a lot of discussion in that and kind of some discourse that I think is important when we're talking about music and culture. Whew. So let's just wrap it up there. That's all for this episode. That's all I have the energy for. But next week, like I said, I might have a little 2003 redo because I really just want to talk about the New York City rock scene at the time. But following that, we have some topics on like 90s bands that are still going in the 2000s as well as maybe some emo music, branch out from kind of what we've been talking about in pop and rap, and then bring it back with some more pop and rap and some other things. I have some stuff under my sleeve. I think it's going to be good. I'm excited for the episodes coming up. I might add some more in than I have planned. So if that excites you, I hope that you'll come back and stay tuned for some future episodes. All right. See ya. This podcast was written and produced by me, Tony Elton. Music by Sam Shapiro. Special thanks to Carlos Jimenez and the University of Denver's Media, Film, and Journalism Department.